Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Tucker Milling. Join Andy Schneider, National Spokesperson for the USDA APHIS Avian Health Program, Editor-in-Chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine, and author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, Chicken Factor Chicken Poop, and Zero Waste Chicken Keeping, as he welcomes top poultry veterinarians, poultry scientists, and poultry nutritionists to discuss the hot topics in the poultry world today and provide science-based, fact-based, study-based information to help you raise the healthiest poultry possible. And now, here's your host, Andy Schneider. All righty, thank you very much for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Tucker Millen. We are broadcasting live from the Tucker Milling Studios here in Northeast Georgia, and we've got a great show lined up for you today, another great show for 2023. We are going to be talking with poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski, and he's going to be covering really the ongoing outbreak, if you will, of high path avian influenza here in the United States. Um, you know, we, we talked about this last week in Chickens in the News segment. I don't have Chickens in the News segment today because really this whole show is all about a Chickens in the News topic, which is the high path avian influenza outbreak that is going on. We'll have time to ask some questions, some questions we've asked many, many times before. I'm starting to see a lot more talk about vaccination for this. I'm starting to hear a lot more people talk about, well, it's here, it's here to stay. Now, what's the next step? What do we need to do? Um, This current outbreak is uh, by far much worse than the last outbreak, which was uh, or 1415, maybe it was 2015, 2016, um, as far as bird deaths. Um, when we get to the questions, we'll ask Dr. Pateski things like, you know, in the past we've always heard it goes away in the summer because of the heat, but it didn't do that. Uh, we still saw plenty of news articles with um, uh, high path being um, uh, detected uh, in both backyard and commercial flocks throughout the summer. And uh, I know we were probably going to have a, or let's just say I know they were anticipating uh, it continuing through the fall and the winter when it's supposed to be worse, when the CDC was even contacting me saying, hey, uh, can you help us get the word out about this and biosecurity and, and, and what, folk need, what folks need to do? Um, I had worked with CDC for a very, very long time, uh, about 10 years as I worked with the USDA Avian Health Program. And I hadn't been in contact with CDC for at least two or three years. So when they reached out to me regarding this particular topic, uh, I don't know, because it was last spring, saying, hey, you know, we were expecting this uh, to be kind of disastrous in the fall. Can you help us uh, educate? I knew that they were expecting it to continue. And it's, it is continuing now um, as we start migration again here in the spring. Uh, we'll, we'll see if uh, uh, with what Dr. Pateski has uh, uh, 
seen out there and, and, and the word on the street that's going around from the powers that be. Uh, do they expect this spring when we start having uh, migration to uh, rear its ugly head again? I don't know if it's ever really stopped rearing its ugly head for the last uh, 12 to 18 months. So uh, we're going to get all this information today after the commercial break. I do want to get to that, get that out of the way, then we'll come back. We'll bring Dr. Pateski on, and we'll talk about, for the whole show, uh, high-path avian influenza, the current outbreak that's been going on for a while now, and uh, millions and millions of birds have been depopulated. Uh, both in the backyard and commercial areas. So uh, we'll talk about that as well when we return after the short break. So during the break, if you want to get the pen and paper out, we'll talk about the outbreak. We'll talk about a few things that you could do um, in, in your backyard, with your backyard flock. We'll talk about the possibility of a vaccine coming around. We've talked about that a lot. And uh, we'll just get through all of that. But get that pen and paper ready uh, for all these notes that you may want to take during the show. And we'll be back right after this short break. Stay with us, folks. Are you dealing with a stinky coop or brooder? Backyard chicken owners are loving Chick Fresh. Not only does it eliminate the nasty odors, but it also eliminates the dangerous and unhealthy ammonia. You can use Chick Fresh in your coop, brooder, garbage can, litter boxes, and more. Even use it in your spouse's smelly shoes. Get your bottle 15% off today by going to coopcarespecial.com. Take back control and say no to nasty odors. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at idealpoultry.com. That's idealpoultry.com. Strong Animals uses plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Our daily snacks, water additives, and coop refresher products contain organic essential oils, prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to promote digestive health and immunity. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals products. Available at local farm stores across the country and Amazon. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today to learn more. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at strombergschickens.com. That's strombergschickens.com. Metzer Farms is now hatching and shipping the premier egg layer. This girl is consistently laying jumbo eggs with a higher nutrient density and lower water content than your eggs now. She is an extremely hardy bird and the most heat and cold tolerant egg layer available, allowing for year-round outdoor production. An eggshell unmatched in sturdiness and thickness, making cracks a thing of the past. Increase your health and double your egg profits. Of course, we're talking about ducks, 
Duck eggs are revered by chefs for their succulent flavor and by bakers for being the better baking egg. Learn more about this extraordinary duck, the Golden 300, or any of our other 35-plus breeds of ducks and geese at MetzerFarms.com and order your next flock from us. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And now we return to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today. And uh, we got a great show lined up for you, so we're going to go right to the phone lines, and we're going to bring on my good friend, Dr. Maurice Pateski out at UC Davis. He's been coming on the radio show now for probably about a decade, um, and he's been writing for uh, Chicken Whisperer magazine now for, well, he was had an article in the very first issue that was printed. Uh, it was either seven or eight years ago. I know this is the 15th year for this podcast, but I think it's the, I want to say the seventh or eighth year for the magazine publication, which, by the way, you can subscribe to totally free for the dig- digital edition, uh, just chickenwhisperermagazine.com. Welcome, Maurice. Thank you for coming on the show. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year, Andy. It's great to be here. It is. So we've got, as always, lots of questions, but we wanted you to um, kind of give us an update on what's going on for the last year or so that this outbreak, I'm assuming they're still calling this an outbreak unless it's already kind of gotten just, well, it's here to stay, so it is what it is type of uh, terminology. But um, I was reading some chickens in the news last week, and I noticed that that news source had contacted you, and I was like, hey, I know him. Maybe that'll be a good show for uh, to 2023 to kick off 2023. So we would just want to, I'm going to just kind of turn it over to you, give us some updates, if you know bird totals, if you know how many uh, 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 different farms have been affected, or how many states. I think it was last I saw a lot, um, and I can't remember if it was all but four states. I, I, I just, I don't want to, I'm not really sure, I don't remember, but I was looking at that pretty recently about how many states had been affected by this, and then uh, what you guys see going forth with now spring migration here around the, uh, what we expect with that while we're not seeing really and maybe we are seeing a decrease in the summer okay we didn't have 20 different farms affected we had 12 so but that's because of the heat because that was always for years always talked about the summer it'll go away because the hot temperatures but i don't remember seeing that too much this past summer so i'm turning it over to you my friend and uh you can give us an, an update review for what's going on yeah, well, thanks again, and um, sure. this is a really, really important topic. Um, unfortunately, whether you have um, commercial birds or, or backyard birds or, or any type of birds, the, the virus is um, hardy in the sense that it infects a lot of different avian, I think we're up to about eight, 80 different uh, species of birds that have been um, affected by this virus um, in, in, in just in wildlife alone. Um, and that doesn't even include the, the handful of mammals, uh, foxes, marine mammals, um, uh, among others, that are also affected by the virus. Um, at this point, it, it is not zoonotic, meaning that it, it doesn't infect humans. There was a poultry worker last year in Colorado um, that did have um, – um, virus and had some clinical signs, but um, for them, I think the consensus at this point is that the, the virus doesn't um, um, 
isn't isn't an issue with respect to humans. That being said, influenza viruses, the flu, um, as we all know, um, can affect uh, humans. And um, you know, while this virus might not be the the one that uh, jumps from um, avian um, or mammalian uh, to humans, um, you know, it's certainly always good. To, uh, to be aware of that possibility. Uh, one of the things I'm a little concerned about eventually is that, you know, you have a lot of, of swine operations that overlap with poultry operations just geographically in the same area. And uh, right now, as, as people are probably aware, um, egg prices are extremely high. Um, so, um, and, and part of the reason egg prices are high, among others, is, is we're dealing um, with this um, you know, really unprecedented outbreak. Um, to your point, um, in, when you go back to the 2014-2015 outbreak, uh, that one disappeared um, kind of like it's quote-unquote supposed to. So respiratory kind of win- are, are more kind of wintry. Respiratory viruses are more kind of a winter phenomena. Um, and we, um, that, that, that outbreak kind of followed that pattern of, as waterfowl migrated into the United States and to, into kind of um, that part of North America um, in the fall and winter, um, they um, ultimately, um, as they migrated away um, toward um, the Arctic in, in the spring, um, the next time those birds migrated in, in the fall of, of 2015 back into the United States, um, we didn't we didn't see any virus, so there was some hope that 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 was going to happen with this um, outbreak, and there's probably a few reasons that has not happened. That, that first of all, that has not happened at all in this outbreak, as, as people are probably aware just from the news and and um, you know people that are listening to these stories. Um, we didn't really get a break um, in the in the summer in the same way that we we had this this um, this kind of break previously, and and most likely that that's probably due to the just the amount of species of wild birds that are now carriers. Um, so if you're in the the southeastern United States, vultures are are the primary kind of carrier of the virus at this point. Um, versus if you're in the Plain States right now, um, if you're in Kansas and Oklahoma, for example, right now there's a lot of waterfowl um, uh, roosting in the Central Valley of California. And then as we move into the, um, the, the warmer kind of spring, um, those, those migratory waterfowl will start moving uh, back up north again, um, and, and we might have another um, significant outbreak across some states that have very low waterfowl populations right now. Um, it's really important to, to kind of understand a couple things when we're thinking about this virus, and, and I think, you know, one thing that's important to appreciate is because it is, you know, I think from a um, uh, because we're dealing with something that, that potentially is, 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 is trying to, if you will, become endemic, um, it's certainly um, possible that we might be dealing with this for, for a long period of time. And uh, one of the things that we're, we're starting to kind of try to get a grasp on is not only what species are being exposed to the virus, but uh, which species show cl- clinical signs and which don't. The, the dogma had always been that waterfowl, for the most part, were just the reservoir and that they were asymptomatically infected. Um, 
and and that's true with um, things like dabbling ducks. So um, ducks are are kind of an interesting kind of case in the sense that they can just transmit disease um, and um, not show any clinical signs, which is not good for for our poultry. In contrast, if you look at like snow geese, for example, um, snow geese die off due to the virus are, are very common and are, are causing um, all kinds of downstream effects. Um, the primary one being if um, a snow, if there's a snow geese die off, um, then you have raptors that are coming in like vultures, for example, right. Right. and uh, they are consuming the, that, that, that flesh and getting to the virus that way. So um, there is kind of a, uh, a phenomena here going on where we're really getting this virus because it's so um, um, it's so prevalent in all these, especially in, 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 in traditional waterfowl species, it's spilling over into um, all these other species. And I think that's why some people are a little skeptical on whether we'll actually be able to ever get rid of the virus. Um, in, in, in the way that it has kind of disappeared in the past. And, and we're seeing some pretty unique things in addition to the virus kind of persisting year-round. We're also seeing the virus now uh, showing up in South America, which was always biologically possible, but uh, it just hadn't happened. So, um, And part of that's just because there's just so much virus um, in the environment and uh, so much virus in um, the waterfowl species themselves. So with that all being said, um, you know, from a productive perspective, you know, poultry is the number one consumed animal protein on the planet. And uh, it actually passed um, um, swine just a few years ago, excuse me, just a few years ago. And and interestingly enough, swine was number one, and it kind of lost that number one um, spot after um, there was this uh, global, didn't affect the United States, fortunately, but a, a global um, African swine fever outbreak. Um, so poultry is kind of almost in the same scenario with a different virus that, that swine was several years ago. And it, it's, it's, in my mind, it's an existential issue for the poultry industry to, to really figure out. And this is not just in, in the United States. This is, this is around the world. Um, Japan has had similar AI outbreaks, uh, China, the K- Korea, um, um, and uh, Israel, uh, France, you know, they're, they're, this, is, this, is, this is normal in the sense that we have AI, but abnormal in the sense that um, it, it seems to be um, more significant um, at this point um, in time than, than I think in any other outbreak that we've ever had. And we're, 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 we're trying to kind of figure out, you know, how do we produce, um, you know, eggs and poultry meat in, in a safe way that doesn't cause any um, food security challenges. The United States is is one of the largest, if not the largest, poultry producer in the world, Um, and it's going to be really important that we kind of figure this out. And and part of the, you know, the kind of research that I work on is really kind of trying to thread the needle, um, if you will, on where we produce our, our poultry. Um, and, and making sure that that is um, in, in a geographical area where maybe we don't have as many waterfowl. Um, and that, that's going to be a, a hard thing to, to, to kind of optimize. For most of the people that are listening to your show, a lot of the people have backyard birds. Um, and uh, backyard birds, you know, have, have their challenges when it comes to biosecurity. 
Um, so the, the, the idea that virus can uh, relatively easily um, move from uh, the um, uh, avian wildlife species to our backyard birds in, in a backyard environment is, is, you know, I think is, is pretty, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's going to be our job as, you know, backyard poultry enthusiasts to make sure that we, you know, reduce the risk of that happening as much as possible. So, for right. example, I live in, in California, um, in the Central Valley of California in Davis, and, and we have a lot of, there's a pond literally, you know, walking distance, um, probably a five-minute walk north of, of our house, and I can hear the geese every morning, um, you know, <laughs> cracking away. So I, I don't have backyard birds, but, you know, neighbors do and things like that. And um, it's a real issue. Um, we, we've um, it, it's something that I think we're we're going to have to really double down on as far as our biosecurity efforts. There's now people that are suggesting not only should we consider the avian influenza vaccine, um, right. which um, you know there's there's a lot of research on and um, is, is 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 something that hasn't been used in the past at a commercial level, but maybe we should use that avian influenza vaccine once it's developed for this specific virus. Maybe we should use that in backyard birds um, and, and strategically um, encourage backyard birds that are close to commercial poultry and or close to um, um, high-density waterfowl. Maybe those are the ones where we should really be focusing our um, that, that vaccine effort um, as opposed to the commercial birds where – at this point in time, even though I agree with you, there is a lot of, uh, seems like there's, it's definitely something you can talk about now, the idea of <laughs> yeah. vaccination um, of, of AI, which, which um, you know, even back in 2014, 2015 was, was, was controversial. I think more and more people are realizing we, we can't do this every year. If this is what the new normal is, um, we're not going to be able to survive as an industry from a welfare perspective, from an economic perspective, from a food security perspective, if, if things don't change. So um, I think it's really, really important um, to, 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 to consider vaccination, you know, from my perspective as, as, a, as a veterinarian and an epidemiologist who really focuses on waterfowl uh, and remote sensing of waterfowl in close proximity to, to commercial poultry. Um, you know, I think there is, we've, we've focused so much on, on biosecurity of the actual physical premise, and I think there is a lot of potential to focus now on understanding the risk outside of your farm, like what I'm just loosely calling kind of external biosecurity, um, but having that information, knowing which of your farms, there's, there's over 44,000 commercial farms, poultry farms in the United States, and knowing um, which of those farms, if I'm, if I'm a, a company and I've got a thousand farms and only a handful of veterinarians, I kind of want to know and rank which of my farms have the highest abundance of waterfowl around them so sure. I, can, I can kind of triage my, my resources appropriately. And, and I think that's a, that's a new way at some level of thinking about this. Um, at the backyard level, obviously, that's not really a relevant thing. We, we kind of have to if we have one farm, then we put everything into that one farm. But but once we have like a thousand farms or even two farms or a hundred farms, um, we need to kind of triage things a little better. Do you um, see so. Do you see with this outbreak that's lasted quite a while now, and we've had you know the number of birds that have been depopulated, um, 
do you see with your position more commercial farms taking it more seriously than they have in the past? Because, I mean, I've been to a lot of these meetings over the years before and after the outbreak in 15, 16, and, um, you know, it, it, it was what it was. People, you know, I, I'm sure there's still commercial farms that still have the, you know, the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no type of thing, and, oh, that'll never happen here. Um, there'll always be those, just like there'll always be the backyarders that say, oh, you know, my, my flock is healthy, and I feed them organic feed, and they'll they'll never get this because they're healthy and they have a good diet, you know, but do you, on the commercial side, are you seeing more commercial farms and companies taking this more seriously than in the past because of this outbreak? I think they've always taken it seriously. I think in the in the previous outbreak in 2015, I think before that outbreak, there was this general sentiment that somehow we were better than everyone else um, yeah. with respect to biosecurity and infrastructure and stuff like that because – and it, it makes sense we'd think that because why was everyone else getting it and we weren't? Um, and and then that outbreak happened and, and there were, you know, a lot of lessons learned on that outbreak um, as far as infrastructure and timing and coordination between the feds, the state, and the companies. So we kind of got, you know, figurative, figuratively kind of punched in the face a little there. Um, which is good. That, that's how you learn. And, and that has helped us for this outbreak, even though the numbers don't support that. But that's definitely helped us with respect to kind of coordination. Um, I think now there, there's, there's kind of two different general sentiments that, that I think people have at the same time. I think they're all hyper-concerned. To, to the commercial poultry industry's credit, you know, biosecurity is, is something that it's, it's just culturally what everyone does at a commercial kind of large-scale level. Um, but I also think there's, there's some, you know, kind of producers that, that have at the same time like this general kind of, you know, feeling of resignation, like this is so overwhelming what's going on now. Um, you have, you know, if, if you look at these maps, at the county level of what's going on, you know, you have, you know, almost, you know, over half of the United States has had, you know, county that is, that is tested positive one way or the other backyard, um, wildlife or commercial. And, mm-hmm. you know, whenever I see someone saying, well, it hasn't been in our county yet. And, but it's in every county surrounding them. I'm like, that's, that's, <laughs> it's in the county. We just haven't found it yet. So, so right. it's probably safer to assume that, that it's there. So I, I think there is like those two kind of general feelings at some level. Um, I think it's going to require, you know, some, some, if, if this is our new normal, we're certainly going to have to start, you know, kind of thinking outside the box a little as far as how we're going to respond to it. Vaccination is one thing that we're going to have to think about. Uh, where we do certain types of production, you know, organic and pasture, that, that matters. Um, if you're going to do those type of practices, um, there's advantages to those systems, but there's, there's one major disadvantage in, in, you know, in an AI outbreak. That's, that's a pretty significant one that, that those birds have to have outdoor access. Um, so thinking about, you know, from a company perspective, thinking about where you're going to want, you know, different types of production systems, where you're going to want broiler breeders and layer breeders, um, you know, the mommies and daddies, if you will, of, of, the, of the chickens and eggs that, that we might eat. Um, those are all decisions, I think, historically that were made based on logistics. Um, 
and now we're probably going to have to bring in, you know, some other decision making into that into that kind of process about where we put those 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 right. locations. Um, so, and then you know, we we talked a little about vaccination, um, understanding you know habitat. So I live in California. We have only about five percent of our historic wetlands. So some people have kind of pontificated that one of the reasons that the virus is spreading among so many different species is that there's limited habitat now for all this wildlife, which uh, is making I... uh, virus spread um, among species that, that maybe historically it, it wouldn't spread on. Um, so there's a lot of different kind of factors that, that, that we're going to have to start thinking. California in the Central Valley that's where we've historically grown the majority of our poultry in California. But the Central Valley has a huge abundance of waterfowl during the, the winter and spring. So gotcha. um, they're understanding that, that reality and, and, you know, threading that needle of, of where we can grow our food and, and where we need habitat for, you know, all these, these wildlife that are, you know, provide all kinds of ecosystem services, um, understanding those and balancing those things out is, is something that I think we historically haven't really um, kind of uh, looked at. I know that um, you had just mentioned um, the commercial industry looking at the way they raise poultry, like the, the pasture-raised farms or, you know, the, the free range, and we're not going to go through all the definition of those, versus maybe the, the – uh, birds that are raised inside, say, a barn setting, whether it be the aviary setting or, or just on, you know, broilers, whatever, layers, it doesn't matter. Um, so obviously, if you've got this big brown egg farm, uh, I'm, I don't even, I probably know a couple of names you'll see in the store. They're eight, nine, ten dollars a piece for this, you know, uh, pasture raised farm. And they'll look at doing things a little bit differently because their birds are, quote, out on pasture. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, um, if you have birds that are inside a barn, whether layers are broilers, um, and the way you raise them, I guess there's that potential, too, that let's say the virus is outside, you still have to bump up that biosecurity because I'm guessing there would be because mice and rodents are such a vector for disease. They is it has have you seen studies where they are bringing it inside the the house? I mean, that, I'm sure that's a poss- I would think a possibility that okay, mine don't go outside. I'm I'm raising I have this type of farm, but I still have to be good on biosecurity, especially for mice and rodents because they can actually bring this inside the barn to my uh, to my. Uh, flock so that's that's i guess that's my first question is that regardless there's ways to get that virus from outside where waterfowl may be inside via rodents uh i got three questions but that's the first one if you'll address that that's i mean rodents tracking this into the barn that's a possibility correct absolutely so the the way that rodents could bring it in um and if you have chickens um, or poultry you do have rodents Uh, whether you see them or not that's a different thing um, right. <laughs> but, but they are there, so we, we just try to manage that as best as possible with, with good biosecurity and good husbandry. But, but the reality is, is that, um, to your point, rodents can be what we call mechanical transmitters of disease. So um, they can literally just have it on their feet. Um, right. And then when they get inside the barn, they look for feed and water uh-huh. and, you know, Unlike us, they're 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 not thinking about you know not putting their feet in the feeder and stuff like that. So that's that's 
probably the way that that scenario happens. It, it becomes a, a game of probability. So if you have a lot of virus in the environment around the barn, say there's a barn and there's some ponds and wetlands and things and, and corn or rice fields, whatever, the, the things that are, that are good predictors of roosting of, of, of waterfowl or feeding of waterfowl, um, then you probably have, you know, potentially all things being equal. You have a lot of virus in that environment. And now these mechanical transmitters, um, um, things like rodents um, um, and some of the common uh, bird species that we'll um, see inside these barns, they can be mechanical and or potentially infected and bring the virus in that way. So when I'll go into a barn and, and just kind of, you know, kind of make an assessment, if I see wildlife in there, that's not, you know, you know, an F minus on, on your biosecurity grade, where I give the F minus is if I see nesting behavior from rodents or from um, any kind of, 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 of bird that, that might, you know, be inside that barn. That's on my no-no-no list. But these barns are so large, even the best ones right. are going to have you know, ways to, for these, these insects to sneak, insects, excuse me, for wildlife, including insects, but, but we're not really talking about them too much to kind of sneak in and uh, potentially spread disease. Um, I think for the, um, it, it's very challenging. And, you know, if you look at England, for example, um, their entire layer system, um, I think is all outdoor or, or pastured. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the, the, the semantics of it, but and I think they've had to, to drastically change that because of, of their situation. Um, uh-huh. So even for us, you know, we have a very large or much, you know, growing organic and pastured um, poultry industry in the United States, and and we're kind of, you know, while from a maybe a welfare perspective, there's advantages to that, and consumers want that. When we're dealing with uh, AI, this this is the the flip side of that. Now we're dealing with a, you know, a much more challenging um, kind of um, a much more challenging type of, 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 of situation, but it's not impossible. So there are things that, that, that producers can do when it comes to biosecurity. And, you know, I'm a big fan of not making perfect the enemy of good. Good is better than bad. So um, it, it's just really important to have, even when those birds are outdoors, to have fencing and to have barriers between indoor and outdoor birds. And you can do that. Um, not everyone does that. Not people do it partially, which is still better than nothing. But um, I've been to, to, you know, enough of these kind of facilities um, in enough states to, to see, you know, a lot of habitat that basically is right up to the edge of where these birds, where, where, the, where the domestic chickens are, are pasturing outside. And, and to me, that, that's a problem um, because now you're, you're increasing the, the potential for interaction between wildlife and, and, and chickens. So in a perfect world, you'd have some kind of buffer um, between your your birds and the um, the wildlife habitat, um, and you would you know you'd be really focusing on things like husbandry and biosecurity with respect to making sure feed is not uh, spilled. Because why do wildlife come there? They they either want to eat the chickens or they want to eat their food. Um, so that's a really important thing to kind of just be aware of um, with respect to your own backyard chickens as a, you know in addition to kind of those, that that kind of commercial world. 
So, I've got uh, two more questions. The next one. Sorry. Sure, no, that's fine. The next question comes actually from a listener, and they wanted to know. It says, "We raise ducks and chickens together. They share the same coop and run. Are my ducks more susceptible to um, the bird flu than my chickens, even though they're all sharing the same space all the time?" Uh, which would she would she um, would the ducks and and you said that sometimes waterfowl may be carriers and not even show any type of illness whatsoever, and in that case maybe the chickens are the ones that she would see first having an issue versus the ducks. I guess that's a loaded question, but she's got them both, same run, same coop, everything. Are the are the ducks more susceptible? Uh, and then I added in that kind of well, if those ducks are carriers or end up being ones that are carriers and don't show symptoms, then maybe the chickens will be the first ones she see that are ill. Yeah, I think domesticated ducks um, that are that are used for for meat, for example, or eggs. Um, I think they're they're definitely susceptible and will show clinical signs of uh, okay. disease. Um, I believe that's the case. I'm almost mm-hmm. positive about that, but not 100% positive. Just in full disclosure, um, raising you know two different species together, um, you know, is, is it a, is it a risk from an AI perspective? The only thing I always worry about with ducks is that they need water for their feet. Um, so when, when you have water around, um, all kinds of diseases, including bacteria can kind of persist and, and kind of gain a toehold a little better. I, I don't know if I would say that, that AI is going to be worse in that situation. Um, uh-huh. but I would, you know, like everything, I think it's, it's, um, the biggest issue is, is, is just making sure that those ducks and chickens aren't interacting with, with any kind of wildlife. Um, gotcha. You know, you worry about that the common sparrows and larks and crows, starlings, right. all those type of, 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 of birds, you know, are, are the ones you'll typically see kind of in barns. And I know in an urban environment, it's a little different. You might see pigeons and, and things like that. Um, but, but it is um, a very common scenario to see, um, all kinds of different wildlife around our, our, our barns. But I don't, I, I, from my perspective, I don't think that what, what this woman is uh, describing as far as having ducks and chickens in the same barn would, would be a risk from an AI perspective. Okay, got it. Additional risk from an AI perspective. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's good. I thought it was a great question um, because she was obviously worried about it and that she had both. Um, I'll, I'll kind of ask this question. I'm not going to read it word for word. Um, they're asking, kind of related to the show in a way, they were asking if with the recent shortage of and high price of eggs, do you feel with having this insider information working with both commercial and backyard, do you feel that the current issue with high price and scarcity of eggs is due to one, this current outbreak are two just over the last 18 months, two years of higher feed cost, higher diesel cost, higher labor cost, not enough labor um, are, was it caused by the high feed cost, high labor cost, high diesel cost, all this stuff. And then the, this outbreak kind of exasperated that, you know, we were already headed kind of maybe this way because of the inflation and cost of doing business, cost of feed, blah, blah, blah but this just kind of was the icing on the cake. Or do you think this, this outbreak is probably more due to scarcity versus price? 
you know, it's kind of a loaded question because it can all come back to one another based on inflation cost of doing business and the outbreak. The outbreak maybe is causing the lack of eggs, which again can cause the price to go up, <laughs> or is the price already? It was the icing on the cake. We were already seeing the prices go up, and this was just poop. This was the the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. What what do you think about that that question and that orders of questions? Yeah, I've talked to a couple reporters in the last couple of days about that specific issue. Um, so AI, 100%, is one of the factors, but not the only factor to the to the to the person asking the question. Um, 100% agree, it's not the only factor. AI, what makes AI, I think, somewhat more challenging, is that if you have 25 week old birds, you know, 10,000 of them or a million of them, that all of a sudden you have to depopulate. Um, because there is AI and you've got to euthanize all those birds. Those birds, the, 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 we, the producer, the farmer was anticipating having those birds and the, and the market was anticipating having eggs from those birds up until about 60 weeks or so and then having a replacement flock uh, come right in you know, a week after and start producing eggs. So the system is not really set up to, to, to have that you know, to deal with, with that. So, so now you've got to depopulate. Now you've got to try to find, you know, a million um, uh-huh. replacement pullets or layers, and, and that, that doesn't, the system doesn't really work that way. So that's a real problem, you know, you talk to and any that's, kind that's, of... Uh, that, yeah, that's 60 weeks of however many millions of eggs that would have been entering the market that's not there anymore. Correct, 100%. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the, the price issue, you know, so we're having all kinds of um, uh, challenges with corn and soy over the last couple of years, some related to war, some related to climate change, and that's causing a lot of volatility in corn and soy futures. Um, so the reality is, is that, um, you know, it, 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 you're, you're, you're playing um, a slightly different game than you used to. Corn and soy prices used to be much more stable, and now they're much more volatile, and they're, they're going up. So that's, and, and that's another major issue. Um, in California, one of the issues that we have is so we have um, Prop 12, which requires that all of our layers um, and any eggs sold in California come from hens that are uh, cage-free. Um, so you can do that in an aviary, for example. But uh, Colorado and Washington, I believe, just passed their similar laws. So now, you know, when you look at kind of the, the law of supply and demand, now those specific cage-free eggs, you have uh, probably the same amount of supply or a little less, and now you have two additional states that have demand. So that's probably increasing those prices as well. So there's been a, a bunch of stuff. AI is definitely not he- helping, and then – you know, the thing I tell people is that we have probably the majority of our eggs um, in the U.S. Are, are, are grown on maybe a 1,000 farms or so, you know, these kind of right. very large um, farms. Right. There's economy of scale and all these type of advantages to those systems. But if, if you hit, you know, a handful of those farms, especially if you, can, if you hit um, the layer breeder farms, you know, where the mommies and daddies uh-huh. or the grandparents, if you, if you hit one of those, that's the equivalent like on a chessboard of hitting like, you know, a rook or a queen in some scenarios. And now you're really messing with the system at that point. The broiler system is a little more robust in that there's, there's, we, we have so many more broilers um, that we produce every year than layers. 
So it kind of has to be a little more spread out. Um, and they turn and the over point, every, every, what, 50 days or something like that? They yeah, every 50, every 50 days, days, right? So, so if disaster happens, um, it, it's not the end of the world. Now, uh, the states and the feds, to their credit, um, along with industry, have been working on these kind of continuity of business plans. Um, how can we make sure that we're um, um, getting the meat and eggs from um, any facilities around those affected facilities um, you know, kind of um, into the system, into the market um, in kind of a continuous fashion. Um, and then in the United States, we're also very fortunate, I, in my opinion, that we have, we have what's called indemnification, where the producers, um, they are um, indemnified or basically paid um, once they have an, a high-path AI outbreak. Now, it's kind of a pennies on the dollar situation. Right, at least right. they're getting something for those flocks. Because what you don't want, and you have this in other parts of the world, is uh, a farmer is just going to hide it um, because they need to survive, and they don't always, you know, maybe tell the authorities. Um, but here, there's more motivation to tell the authorities to get um, the outbreak kind of handled um, and to and to kind of euthanize that flock, depopulate that flock, and then um, start over again. Tell me, uh, when we were talking about the Colorado, and there was another state that had just kind of passed, or maybe they passed it and it just took effect, the no more cages, Washington, no more cages for, for the layers. I, I don't think I'm making this up, but in the last two weeks, I saw at least one report that, and I don't, it may have been one of those two states, I want to say it was Colorado, that talked about delaying that because of the, situ the current situation. They're like, you know, we, we're, we're, have you seen any of that or heard any of that uh, coming your way? I, I can't believe I just made that up because when you mentioned it, it did pop in my head, like me reading or seeing an article where I want to say it was Colorado may delay. And it may have just been a, an opinion piece that says, oh, they may need to look at delaying this because of the current issue. But have you seen anything come across the board about that, rumor of delaying that because of the current situation? I'm, I'm, I'm not getting that word, delaying what? Okay. So like delaying the, the upgrade to the cage-free um, in Colorado and Washington. I, I, I remember, and it could have been an opinion piece that I saw where someone was like, hey, they just passed these laws or these laws are now taking an effect that they all have to be cage-free. Um, Maybe they need to consider delaying that because of the situation oh, that we're in. Yeah, yeah, delaying. Um, have you heard any of that? Or I don't know if they had made the decision, or they were someone was offering that decision, or they were going to suggest that decision, or the governor was like, "Yeah, we probably need to delay this while we're in this predicament that we're in right now with the eggs." Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. They're talking okay. about that though. Um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that happens. Um, I know. And, and um, when you have organic flocks, by definition, an organic flock has to have outdoor access. Um, oh. But when we're dealing with what we're dealing with now, um, if there's an outbreak, I think the state vet um, has the authority to give an exemption um, okay. until further notice. And that actually happened. That's happened several times, I, I know, for okay. several states um, in, 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 in the United States. Um, so there can be exceptions, exemptions given. Um, 
you know, the, the aviary situation, those birds are indoors the whole time. Um, right. Aviaries are, are hard facilities to, to clean out, um, depopulate and stuff like that. They're just a little more challenging logistically. Right. So, so there, there could be some advantages to not having that aviary system during an, during an outbreak potentially. Not Again, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole just for two minutes because um, it's not totally related to the show, but you, you had talked about uh, Colorado and Washington going to this. California, you mentioned, have already done that. I knew California had already gone to the no more cages. Um, and, and I'm getting just half of these studies and half the information. So most of my inf- information is coming from, you know, like the United Egg producers and, and places like that, the commercial side of it, uh, who are obviously against this. We know that they're, most of them are against that. And so most of my information comes from that side of the aisle, if you want to, you know, just picture it. Um, I'm not getting a lot from the other. But for, for years, we're talking at least, you know, five years or longer, and it's probably going on even longer than that, everything that I've seen, and again, it's coming from that side of the aisle of we're against this, uh, so, you know, there's um, there may be other information that I'm not seeing. If you have it, hey, forward it to me. I'd love to have it in my file to refer to it. But it's that people in general, if they're just saying, yes, I'm against this. This is this this is, I, I want to have better animal uh, um, treatment, or if they're very quick to go in the voting booth and say. Well, yes, I want this, and I'm voting for for no cages because that's the right thing to do. That's a lot easier and a lot different, and they're not seeing that carry over to when they have to open their wallet. That at the end of the day when they're in the store and they have to pull out their wallet, and they're like, oh, wow, I I was paying $1.79 for a dozen, and now I'm paying $4.79 for a dozen because – wait a minute, why? Because I voted for this. And I I know that I had seen a study where a a big – grocery store actually got on the bandwagon and said, hey, we're just only going to carry this, and their egg sales plummeted. I mean, people were literally driving to a store down the road to buy just eggs after they bought groceries from this store, um, and they just weren't selling. And then they had to reverse and backpedal and say, oh, <laughs> we're not selling any eggs uh, because we jumped on this bandwagon. And I even think McDonald's was kind of a part of that, seeing that ramification percussions back, if you will, of this. On your side, being in California and and having access to maybe other information from just the commercial folks, um, do y'all, and it may be, yes, that's true, Andy, but just not at the scale as the information you're getting from the commercial providers, but that everything I've seen is that it's quick to say, oh, yes, I want this, and it's quick to just poke that boat, but when it comes to pulling out your wallet, they're not putting their money where their mouth is. Um, or is that is it happening like that? Just not quite as much as the one side of that I want you to believe. Or is are are people really embracing that and really I'm willing to pay for this? And are they paying for that? Uh, in, at least in California, because y'all have implemented it before. Um, if you can elaborate really shortly on that, because it, it always comes comes up, and my information is just kind of one sided that I get. No, I, I, I think it's a really good, good, good discussion topic. I think ultimately the farmers will do what consumers want. So Correct. they're, they're somewhat agnostic. Um, and from my experience working with them, um, they're going to do what, what consumers want. Um, and if consumers want, you know, cage free, pastured, 
um, eggs, then then that's what that's what the farmers are going to learn how to grow. Um, it's it's you know it's a market driven um, kind of system. Um, I, I think you know we're kind of at this interesting point in time, and and um, anytime you have any kind of effect or change to a system um, like what we're dealing with now or 50 million birds are depopulated, egg prices uh-huh. are, are really expensive. Um, to me, it, there's actually an interesting opportunity. Um, if, if feed prices are expensive, then, you know, there's opportunities instead of corn and soy, there's opportunities for pre uh-huh. and post consumer waste and there's opportunities uh-huh. for insects to kind of move into the equation yeah. and other uh, other foods that that don't haven't traditionally been used um, for dealing with avian influenza, and there's opportunity for for newer vaccines to come out. You know, we saw that with COVID. Um, if there's you know biosecurity issues, then then you know understanding where waterfowl are and and thinking about where we're farming is going to be more important. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, I think people have worried about this situation that we're in now for years. Uh-huh. Um, saying, you know, careful what you wish for, it might come true. And, and I think, unfortunately, <laughs> right. that's kind of where we are um, because people understood, okay, we'll farm that way, but but just in case, this is, this could be a problem. Right. And, unfortunately, I, I, that's where we are now. But but my, I think my bigger point is that I think we can work around this. We just have to be innovative and adaptive, um, and, and there's ways to, to grow poultry um, in this new world, if this is what we're dealing with, um, and, and still grow it inexpensively and still consider welfare um, and food safety and all those other things. But, but we got to do it differently. So, and people right. don't always like change, and, and that's where I think sometimes it takes some time. We're kind of at that sure. turbulent era right now, unfortunately. Right. I equate it, actually, that, that whole topic of, oh, I'll vote for this, but the time to pay for it, they don't, you know. Um, it kind of to the buy American kind of movement. And, and back when I was with Tractor Supply for about five years, and I often asked them that question, even in meetings. And they obviously, a company that large, it spreads over the, all the United States, they've done the studies. And I remember them specifically telling me that, you know, everybody's quick to say, buy American, or we need to buy more American. And they'll say, buy American on Facebook, but they're typing that on a phone that's made in Taiwan. Um, but <laughs> but they, they will... Um, <laughs> You know, Tractor Supply has done those studies. They've set the exact same item or tool next to each other on the shelf. One's made in China, one's made in America. America's two bucks more, and it just sits there. And they have to replenish. And the China made for two dollars less is sold out. And I, and I know we have to pick our battles. I totally get it. It's kind of like the uh, it's kind of like the uh, vegetarian vegan that has leather seats in their BMW. You know, it's, you, you can't you, you can't do everything perfectly. I I love to try to buy American, and I try to do my best. But I'm wearing uh, Ariat boots that are made in China. You know, they're Ariat, and they have the big farmer brand, or my overalls that are Liberty that used to be made in America. Or who knows in what country they're made? So we all you know try to do. You know, about and it's never going to be perfect. But I kind of equate that. Yeah, I'll vote for better uh, humane treatment of animals. But then they won't. They won't buy. It. They'll still buy the cheap eggs in the store. So I think that crosses all kinds of different topics of whether it's buy American or buy cage free or organic or, or whatever the case may be. I guess it's all all relative with that. Um, we've talked. I, I guess so. On you know, we've got about five minutes. I'm not going to get into because um, you always in a lot of shows like. You know, we talked about this disease. Let's talk about how to prevent it, and and that's great. We do that every show, um, and then we've done 
countless shows about you know back, backyard biosecurity. Um, I did that for 10 years with USDA and and, and, and like you said earlier, which I thought was good, uh, and, and like what I say is like, look, here's a, when I was touring and teaching, here's a booklet about biosecurity. Let me just tell you that you're not going to do it all. I promise you you're not. And if you do it all, you'll get burned out, and then we'll do nothing. Uh, if you try to implement all these steps, the soccer mom's not going to stop at the car wash and wash her wheels off and tires off after going to the feed store every Saturday. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, research biosecurity for your backyard. There's plenty of podcasts that we've done on it. There's plenty of materials out there for it. And then do what you can. Every little th- extra step you can do is going to basically make uh, your biosecurity plan, bio plan better, uh, whether it be, okay, I've got hand sanitizer attached to my coop now. I use it before and after. I have a foot bath now. Or I'm only using these boots in my coop. That's it. I'm not wearing them inside my house. I'm not wearing them to the feed store. I'm only wearing them in, in the, on the farm, and that is it. So there's different things that, that you can do. But if you look at the booklet and go, wow, all these, uh, you know, and, and some people may, like I said, go gung-ho and like, I'm doing it all because I love my birds. But they won't, they'll get burned out and then do nothing uh, versus say, okay, I can do the hand sanitizer. I can do the designated pair of boots. I can even, you know, uh, do the foot bath, you know, and things like that. Um, but every step that you can do to improve your biosecurity uh, for your backyard birds is that much more uh safe for your birds while we're dealing with all of this and it's obviously all, all over the place so um, if you want to add to that towards the end of the show that that's great but i just think there's plenty of information out there for everybody to get to what um and we can wrap it up with this what um what are you seeing for spring you touched on it maybe a little bit earlier but what are you seeing as we start having birds migrate again in the spring as temperatures warm up and they start migrating again. Pacific air, airway, the, you know, the eastern and, and mid-Atlantic, all that. What, what are they thinking is going to happen? Do you think it's, I mean, um, regor- the spring regarding the uh, high path AI? Or, and I guess to add to that, what do you think the spring is going to bring? Or what's the word on the street about what spring is going to bring as they start migrating? And then two, Based on the pattern we're in right now, are we? Has it kind of? I don't like the word plateaued. Um, do they think it's just you know? Here's where we're at, and, and this is you know what what we expect. You know, we we get you know four farms a month, or you know six farms, a, or whatever the case may be. Are we just kind of settled into this pattern, or do they think we may have an increase in spring and then in fall? Um, what what's kind of the word on the street regarding that? Yeah, so long story short, I think a lot of it depends yeah. on where you live uh, geographically. Yep. So if you're in uh, the Upper Plain states right now, there's just not a lot of waterfowl there. They've gone south um, into, um, you know, states like Texas, uh, Oklahoma, um, California, where, where relatively moderate climate. Um, a couple of things I would suggest, though. One thing is sure. – um, there's a great the, – the Cornell School of Ornithology has a, a website called eBird, and eBird is outstanding. Um, and uh, I think it, it's probably going to be in our best interest to start becoming a little more knowledgeable about the different types of waterfowl that, that might be in our areas at different times of year. So uh, going on to eBird and, and spending an hour or two just starting to get comfortable with, like, oh, I live in this area, yeah. and – is that .com or .org or .edu? 
Uh, I think I, it's oh, probably I .edu, but uh, it's a great website. It's an amazing uh, tool. Um, I I've used it, it for several. several forever, uh, it may, it oh, may sorry, have several, but the one that came up was uh, eBird.org, the Cornell uh, Lab yep, of Ornithology. Yep. Yep. So those guys are amazing. Um, you know, real rock stars in what they do. It'd be good to have them on a, on a show at some point to describe maybe, Definitely. You know, how, how that how that could be used um, for um, people that are that are interested in understanding where, where waterfowl are at the backyard, kind of chicken level, um, so um, or at the backyard, you know, kind of level. Uh, but it's a great website, um, and it's very user-friendly. There's an app there. It's very interactive. I saw that. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a citizen science type of, of, of tool. So it's a, that's a good thing to, to spend some time on, and then that can be used in order to kind of understand, you know, and you're – what what is December, January, February, et cetera, going to look like? Um, and I think that's that's probably the next level of, of biosecurity to really understand, you know, what what when it, it it's not to say that you know January you can take off and then February you'll ramp up again, but it's just to give you an idea of of, of where waterfowl are um, in general and and where they're being sighted and stuff like that. Okay. So I think that's a good tool to start using. Um, but. Um, yeah, that would be the, the the only other thing I would kind of mention okay. that we haven't talked about previously. Good deal. Yeah, I'm there, and I'll share it on our Facebook page to so people can say, hey, that's, they're doing great work. And I'll reach out to them to see if they want to come to the show or maybe do an article for spring all about ebird.org, uh, and then they can – I think I may reach out to them and do that for, for the spring issue, see if they want to do a whole yeah. issue about what they are, what their goals are, what what how our readers and listeners can benefit from that. So that's awesome. That's a great well, idea perfectly out of time so thank you very much for joining us and updating on all this and lots of great information as always and we will look to having you back on uh, uh second thursday in february i appreciate you coming on and sharing all your vast knowledge we do appreciate it every time okay thank you so much andy take care great. thank you bye-bye um, all righty, and we're looking at changing the time. If you are a live listener, um, we're looking at changing it from uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, which we've been broadcasting at that time for years and years, um, to noon. Uh, and we actually did a noon show, a 30 to 45-minute noon show every single day of the week <laughs> way back when. Because my thought was that, hey, people work, they work in office buildings, they have their computer, they have their phone, smartphones, whatever. You know, when they, hey, I'm going to lunch or I'm taking a lunch now, I'm going to sit at my desk, I'm not going to do any work, but I'm going to tune in to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer from noon to, to, you know, from 12 to 1230, eat my salad, eat my sandwich, eat my soup. And uh, I can I can not have to worry about work. I can listen to my backyard birds. I can have some fun for that 30, 45 minutes up to an hour. I think we did start at 30 minutes, and it ended up being an hour show, as always. Um, and so, but now every Thursday at noon Eastern Standard Time, and I think that's already confirmed. It works well with Dr. McCray and um, Dr. Poteski, and I'm sure Curran Gehring, who actually, I believe, has welcomed a new baby, his second child, I believe. So he will not be on, I don't believe, this month uh, because he's busy with, uh, with the new baby and his family. We wish him all congratulations and luck with that. Um, but I'm sure it will be okay with him and his schedule uh, over there at Tucker Milling in, uh, in Alabama. And let me just try to find this here. There we go. And... Um, so that's what we're looking for. I'm also looking at having on the third Thursday, uh, so next Thursday we'll see if it pans 
out. Um, I'm looking at starting a new show where we invite on uh, backyard poultry owners and, and even new products that are on the market. I know and I'm very excited uh, to see that my good friend Frank um, has started back the Chicken Fountain. Uh, he was a sponsor of the show for a long time. He was a good friend. I've met him in person several times. We've done some events together. Uh, and he uh, uh, he stopped that for a while. He's got some great kids, great wife. I know his kids are in college or going to college. But he has started back up the Chicken Fountain. I was talking to Dr. McCray offline. And you need to check them out. He had some really cool products, and his waterers are fantastic. Uh, so go check him out. Send him some business if you're looking for a good waterer. Dr. McCray really liked his waterers, and when he uh, w- went out of business or stopped making those, um, it was it was sad. So we're glad to have Frank back and, and the Chicken Fountain. So go check him out. I haven't even looked at his new website or if he's reactivated it or whatnot, but we're glad that he's back doing what he does regarding waters. And lastly, don't forget, guys, that you can still subscribe to the digital edition of Chicken Whisperer Magazine, absolutely free, chickenwhisperermagazine.com. You can read every single article we have ever published in the last eight years in the magazine from experts in their field like Dr. Pateski, uh, Dr. McRae, Dr. Curran Gehring, um, and and others. We've got Dr. Jessica Fox with Ralco, which is the Strong Animals folks, uh, Christine Heinrich with the American Poultry Association that's right for the magazine. So it's good stuff. You know, we, we really make sure the folks that write for our magazine know what they're talking about. They have science-based, fact-based, study-based information to back it up uh, with, to be honest, some of the other poultry magazines. If you have poultry, a pen, and a pulse, they will let you write for them, and we don't do that here. So uh, go check it out. Welcome uh, to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by... No, we're not starting the show over again. Um, We're doing show closing, so push the wrong button here on the... on the switchboard. So, but thanks for very much for tuning in. We'll see you next Thursday right here on Backyard Poultry. This has been Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Tucker Milling with your host, Andy Schneider. For more information, find us on the web at chickenwhisperer.com, on Facebook by typing in The Chicken Whisperer, on Twitter at Backyard Poultry, and on Instagram at The Real Chicken Whisperer. Thanks for listening.